We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Welcome to this week's People I Sorta Know podcast. I'm Chase Parm, and today we're going to visit with Eddie Rester. He's the lead pastor at Christ United Methodist Church in Jackson, Mississippi. He spent eight years as the lead pastor at Oxford University United Methodist here locally in Lafayette County. He was my um, my pastor for that amount of time. He's been a very significant spiritual presence in my life during that period of time as well. He's not going to preach to you today, but I'm going to talk to Eddie a good bit about moving churches, about what it looks like post-pandemic, what religion and church is in 2023, and a number of topics uh, along those lines. So I think it's entertaining. I think it's informative for those who are interested in today's topic. Again, we uh, we even talk some basketball. We do some stuff at the end. Eddie's a huge uh, Duke basketball fan, but a lot of topics, a lot of important things that I feel like with this, a conversation I've been wanting to have. So whether you are a, uh, a regular churchgoer, someone who is potentially very interested in uh, a religious conversation, or somebody that's just uh, here because you listen to uh, the podcast on the network or interested in, in, in humans and things that are affecting humans every single day, which is something I'm trying to look at with this podcast every week. So let's get to it. Here is this week's podcast, again, on the people I sort of know with lead pastor at Christ United out of Jackson, Mississippi, Eddie Rester. Eddie Rester now joining us on the MyPerfectFranchise.com hotline. Eddie, good to talk to you. It's been a little while. You were in uh, you were in Oxford for eight years now in Jackson, Christ United. You just up and left us, sent some messages. Uh, yeah. and you, were, you were gone in a few months. It was all over. It was, it was all over. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah, not as quick as a coaching change, but uh, – but yeah, we we were there for eight years. Audra and I, my wife, uh, actually met at Ole Miss, got married at Oxford University United Methodist Church there. Um, my kids still go. Uh, both of them are Ole Miss kids, uh, so the students, so they still go uh, to OU. Uh, so so yeah, made the jump from uh, from Oxford to Jackson. It's been a a mix of wonderful and a mix of Jackson isn't run like Oxford, Mississippi. Yeah, there's, there's there's some truth there. We talked about that a little bit before we got started. I I, I know when it went public, but just sort of curious. We're going to run all over the place. I've got a lot of topics. But when do you first start realizing, hey, we're probably getting a different appointment. There's going to be a change. What does that process from a timeline look like? 
Yeah, it, it was fairly unexpected. COVID did uh, did a number on me in a lot of ways. It did a number on a lot of people. Um, and, and I spent a lot of time 2021 um, really thinking, am I still called to the ministries? Am I, am I still supposed to do this? I mean, it was a, it was a, you know, I spent four or five, six months really digging and thinking, having a lot of friends talking with me, praying. Um, and that December, I guess, of 2021 really and it's a long story there too, involving funeral and all sorts of stuff, but it really felt like this is, this is where I'm supposed to be in the church. And then um, in January, early January, I think January 3rd, the Bishop called and said, Hey, I want you to consider uh, moving to Jackson and our system. The way it works is the pastor gets to say, say, I want to stay. The church gets to say, we want a pastor to, uh, to go or stay. And the Bishop gets a chance to say, Hey, we want you to consider this, and so that was that was my situation. We had uh, kind of cleared the hurdles at uh, at OU uh, to stay. The bishop called, and um, and I didn't, you know, it's one of those things. People say, "Well, the bishop calls, you got to go." Uh, but for me, it wasn't that. He gave me about three weeks to really pray and consider and talk, and uh, and Audra took and I took all that time, about three weeks of praying and discerning and talking to different folks before we before we said, okay, we feel called to go in it. You know, uh, it was a real hard decision. Like I said, our, a lot of our history is tied up in Oxford and our girls are in Oxford. And so um, told the Bishop late January uh, of last year, we'll go. I think we announced sometime in February uh, at OU, we had to keep it under wraps for a bit. And then even after I, after I announced at OU, it was still, I think a couple of weeks before the announcement was made where I was going. When you get to a place, and obviously, like you said, you have tons of history in Oxford, but I mean, did you have, in your mind, you think, hey, we're going to be here for a certain amount of time? I mean, was it, hey, let's get the girls out of high school at least? I mean, are there lifetime lines? The day you walk into the church the first time, what are you thinking? Yeah, I mean, you try, I try not to put timelines on it. You know, I like to stay places um, a while. I was in Hattiesburg for 17 years before I came to Oxford. Um, in Oxford, eight years, and, and quite honestly, uh, love I uh, still love Oxford, love the church there and, and could have stayed a long time. Um, but there's just this th- sense of my gifts, the needs of Christ United, the gifts of Christ United uh, as well. Um, just a good match. And so uh, when you walk in, you just kind of you start doing assessments. What's working, what's not working, just like in any other organization. Sure. Um, where uh, where our strengths, where our weaknesses, um, where the opportunities um, what is, what does the ground really look like? I mean, there are a lot of things, uh, at Christ United, we're in Northeast Jackson, uh, Northeast Jackson. A lot of the folks who founded the church have moved farther North to Ridgeland and Madison, um, when they used to be, you know, in the same neighborhood with the church. So it's a, uh, it's a very different type church than, uh, than OU was. Maybe this interests nobody else, but it interests me. So you're contemplating just do I want to go? Where do I want to go? I mean, what what do you know about the church you're going to? I mean, do you get a do you go visit and talk to people? Do you get a pamphlet on like budgets and what's going on? I mean, because any business, it would be, hey, I'm gonna move from here to there, I'm going from Ford to Chevy, or I'm doing whatever I'm mm-hmm. doing. It would be a mass of information. And I mean, you are the CEO of a, of, a, yeah. of a business here in this way. So I mean, what does that what does that look like? Yeah, it's it's weird. It, I mean, it's weird, it, honestly. And so, and that's some of the rub I have with our point of system. Uh, in the Methodist Church, the bishop uh, says, 
uh, we want you to consider this, or sometimes the bishop just says, this is where you're going. Uh, and so there's not a lot of time to do uh, market research or, uh, you know, background <laughs> checks or, you know, whatever you want to call it. I had about three weeks, um, the bishop, because he honored, wanted to honor my commitment to OU, OU's commitment to me. And so I, I did some of that. I, you know, quietly called some folks, uh, former pastors of the church. I, you know, talked to people I knew who were at the church. Um, even talked with the pastor who uh, was retiring. He hadn't announced his retirement yet. And so it was a kind of a, you know, let's, let's chat. Um, but so I, you know, I had that opportunity um, to do some of that, but it's not like, you know, it's not like in the business world where, Hey, I'm going to consider making a jump to over here and I'm going to do all sorts of research. There are going to be seven interviews. You know, they're going to send me information. I'm going to send them information. Um, there's, there's none of that. You don't, you don't do any of that exchange. So there's not, at least in our denomination, there's not that interview process. Um, and sometimes that's great because sometimes people get sent to churches who would never get sent to churches. And it's a great thing because they just wouldn't interview well, or they wouldn't have gotten the call to interview. And, you know, uh, but sometimes I think it's helpful, particularly in larger church settings to spend a little time. Uh, is this is this going to work? Because, the you know, there's a high risk, high reward kind of situation. Do you feel like you were the religious version of a stand-up comic on your first sermon where you get up there and hope they react to it and you're kind of looking uh -huh. out in the crowd a little bit and go, hey, what is, is this all good? Because, <laughs> you know, you're six years into a service and you go, okay, hey, Eddie just had a bad week. It's all right. We That's right. Connect. But week one and two has got to be pretty sharp. I mean, how do you even figure out, hey, what are we what are we talking about today? Do you go back to a, to an oldie but goodie or what? Yeah, well, you know, what you do is you try to figure out, okay, what, uh, what do they need? On the first Sunday, the first Sunday is really, um, are they going to trust you? Um, yeah. Are they going to relate to you? And so uh, you, you pull out a great story. Uh, you, you don't choose one of the hard, weird scriptures. You just pick something that you can, you can hit a, you can hit a home run on. And you want to do that really your first two or three weeks. And it's not that you're, you know, playing or whatever, but, but people need to kind of see who you are and what you believe in. So, you know, uh, my opening story it's a story I love to tell. You probably heard it. You probably slept through it a time or two, Chase. Yeah, I, but uh, was uh, it, my dad renovated a boat motor, spent spring of my fourth grade year taking this boat motor uh, to local co-op to figure out how to do small engine repair. And, you know, at the end of all this, he lowers it in this huge oil drum in our backyard, cranks it and it roars to life. And, and we're all looking at dad like, that's great, but we don't own a boat. And we never owned this boat. We and you know we never owned a boat for this thing. And so, so that was my. I love that story. My dad hates that story. So if you know my dad and you're listening to the podcast, let him know that I told that story again. And my dad's you know push back on that is well, Eddie, you could rent a boat. That's what people did. You owned a motor and you'd go to a lake and you rent a boat. And I'd like, Dad, we never did that. We never you we never rented a boat. So um, so anyway, that that's. That was the story. And a guy in the church uh, in Oxford, actually, two or three weeks before I left, said, man, my favorite my favorite story you ever told was about the boat motor. And I was like, God, thank you. That's, That's where I'm going. Uh, but, you know, you, you want, again, those first few weeks, you want them uh, to, to just get a sense of your rhythm and preaching. And here's the thing. And I, I love humor. I, I think that um, preachers who just go you know, let's do a seven point sermon. 
you know, let's dig deep into the theology of Calvin or Wesley or Arminius, or, you know, I'm going to go to sleep. I, and, you know, one of the things I committed to early was I want to preach a sermon that I'm bored. I would be bored listening to. Um, and so, uh, and I listen to a lot of comedians. So it's, it's not different than journalism in a lot of ways. I mean, no. you write really academic type articles and people go, okay, whatever. But I mean, you know, a good columnist are going to tell you stories. They're going to be humorous. They're going to relate. They're going to do all these different things. I mean, it's writing is writing in a lot of ways, storytelling is storytelling in a lot of ways. What, what is your process? I mean, is there a day a week where you just completely hone in on it? I mean, do you have, I mean, you've been doing this for a long time. Do you have itemized things you come back to? I mean, what, what does it look like over the course yeah. of the week or how far in advance do you plan? So we plan out sermons typically about a year um, in terms of just what themes are going to be, scriptures sometimes with that. So we try to plan it out. Now, we don't follow that. You know, for instance, during COVID, we had a couple incredible series planned for the spring of 2020 uh, at, at OU. And uh, and we realized very quickly you couldn't preach a sermon series about uh, you know, serving faithfully in the world and calling people to serve in children's ministry when there was no children's ministry. So, uh, you know, we had to do a lot of pivoting. We'll do that here. If, if we sense that we need to go a different way, uh, that's just part of the process. But we try to plan far enough out that we can, you know, whether it's images or story or different things. Um, but my, my weekly process is um, I start on Mondays, uh, sometimes Sundays, afternoons, uh, if I'm not watching football or basketball, now that Duke's out of the tournament, I don't have anything to watch over the course of this weekend. Do a little reading. Monday, do some reading. Tuesday, do some reading. Wednesday for me, uh, I take the morning and write. Um, so I'll stay at home. I don't go into the office. Uh, if I go in the office, I don't get anything done. Uh, I take the morning to uh, to write. Sometime late that afternoon, typically I'll return to it. Thursday morning, I'll return to it. Um, and then Thursday noon, all of our production people have to have, if I'm going to have slides or anything like that, they have to have that by one. And so it's a hard stop for me. Um, and then typically I lay it down until Saturday morning. I'll go back over it. I've got a process of writing out the manuscript, but um, that I do every week. Uh, people look at it and think I'm crazy. Uh, and that's my process. One, a couple of things that guide me in that one, one uh, uh, guy named Will Williman, who was a bishop, he's a preacher at Duke Chapel. He said, if you can't recount at least the main points of your sermon in your head uh, after you write a sermon, he said, nobody in the pews can be able to do that. The other thing he said was, don't change anything on Sunday morning. What you go to bed with on Saturday night, preach on Sunday morning, because you you will confuse yourself. Uh, and the times that I've tried to change things on Sunday morning, uh, that's that's been true. So uh, it's changed over the years. I used to write Saturday night specials when I started out. I thought that I could just write on Saturday night and, you know, I'd get to midnight on Saturday night and realize that this is the dumbest thing ever. Um, and it took a long time to break that habit. Um, but yeah, it's a creative process. And yeah, you, I mean, you know that you wrote a book here recently. So I'd love to hear how your process in writing that kind of any anything parallels with what what I do. You know, my deal was it was such a, and I'm haven't announced this yet, so I'm, I'm, I've, I've done this twice. I, I'm, I'm working on a second project that's given me a little more time to actually do it. This first one, I was in such a state of I had to go, 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 because the way the book process worked was, I mean, Ole Miss won this thing on June 26th. Well, if it was not to the pub or to the printer by September the 20th, 
Mm-hmm. It didn't get out for the holidays and football season, and I wouldn't have sold any copies because you, right. if, if you missed that immediate holiday season, you might as well not write the book. Yeah. So that played a huge role in mine where I had 61, 62 days to, to write it, um, something like that. Wow. And then you also had how many of our interviews had to go with that. So it was a, it was a rush process. What I would do, and I'm, I mean, you know, on this, cause I was day 45 service when, when we were here was I'm an early riser. I get up early anyway. So I get moving. I, um, I would wake up around 4am and I would ride until about six 30 when Carly Ann got up. It's kind of that two, two and a half hours to organize my thoughts, do my regular work with whatever my job is. And then also, also write. And some of the reason for that is, that's the best time for me in a day anyway, because my phone is not going to ring. That's the one right. time of day where I know, hey, emails, I can get to those later. People are asleep. I can still be socially asleep from an acceptable standpoint. So let me get let me get work done during that period of time. And I I did kind of what you would learn from deadline writing in journalism is just get something on paper and you can always come back to it and fix it. Just write right. something. So if I knew there was a chapter... I said, okay, this is going to be bad. This is not the way it's going to go into the book, but I'm just going to write something. I'm going to tell a story and then I'll come back and try to fix it later. And then what I also did was left, there's two chapters really early in the book. They're chapters three and four, four and five, something like that, that I knew were going to be kind of boring. They're going to be more baseball minutiae that they were going to be very working chapters that had to happen, but I didn't like them. It was not what I really wanted to write. So I'll, I, le- I left them to the end. And I don't think most people would go get it out of the way, but I wanted the motivation to write those chapters when I saw the book was almost done. That right. I had a, a lot of pages done and went, hey, I can be excited about finishing in the process here more than I'm excited about these chapters. So I did that, um, got it to the printer, got it to the layout person. And there was a few edits past that, but it was just, it was such a rush project. I mean, you're talking wow. two months and it's not fiction where you're just writing. I mean, I have to, in a lot of ways, it's it's 20, it's 20, 21 chapters it's 20 or 21 really long news stories. So you're having to make yeah. sure your facts are correct. And what I would run into is I ask, because memories don't always work for people, even in the moment or down the road, I'd ask three people, hey, what happened in that meeting? And I'd get three different answers. And I'd go, okay, well, which one makes the book? Is it this because he's the main character? Or is it this because, hey, that's better for the book. So I'm going to take yeah. I'm going to take what you said. That sounds great. Let's do that. And there was a lot of those decisions, um, you know, because I didn't talk to Mike, which is obviously a huge part of the book for weeks because he was in the Netherlands coaching Team USA. So he didn't get back. And then when he gets back, he's jet lagged. He's tired. Mm-hmm. Our first meeting was, frankly, not very good. Um, he admitted it. He said, I'm tired. I'm kind of forgetting some facts. I'm, I'm not fully here. And then I met with him about two weeks later and I walked in and he had his coffee and he had his binder and he's ready to go through all the games and all the numbers and everything else. And he was, he was all in. Um, but the, the assistant coaches, Mike and then Cammy really kind of yeah. carried it to be able to get me through from here to there and let them tell stories and write it. So it was, it took a lot of help, a lot of cooperation, but it was, it was pretty daily for two months of just go, 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 go with a very, very tight deadline at that point. Well, and somebody once said that uh, sermons are never finished. They're just preached. And I, that book sounds like one of those books that probably if you'd had three or four more months, you could have shaped it in some different ways. But it was time. You just had to go. And that's, you know. I, I, I told a, a, an author friend of mine, I, I said, I wish I'd have had two more weeks for this story and this story. And he said, Chase, 
had you had 10 more years, you still would have said, I won't own it two more weeks. That There's always yeah. going to be that one more story, that one more thing, because there's nothing more. And, we, and we've gone into, we've gone in and fixed these things that we found. But then, you know, you, and you know this from a sermon, you read through things and you don't catch, your eyes are glazing over. So you don't catch things that somebody else would catch. And I had people read it. I mean, there's a lot of people involved. Oh, yeah. And then it goes to publication and you realize you misspelled a name or you left this out and you went, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God. And you have to go in and fix it. And then you're going, well, there's there's 200 copies out there that didn't thank this person. Oh, well, it, it, <laughs> it, it, it is what it is, you know? So yeah. it was a learning process. It made me a better, not even really writer. It, it made me just a better professional in whatever I decide to do from an organization, from a lack of procrastination, mm-hmm. from... Even just completing a big project, there's something to the internal understanding of yourself that you put a big project out there and on paper like that and and, and get it done in that time frame. So no, I, I completely, I completely get that. So you said manuscript, you're writing out almost every word you're saying, or it's not just outlined with some bullet points? Yeah, every every week I I, I type a six page paper, six page double spaced Times New Roman twelve point. Uh, paper. And uh, so every year, you know, if I preach 45 weeks a year, that's a, it's a fair size book. Uh, and so uh, <laughs> I should think about that sometime. Yeah. Uh, but, but yeah, so it's all manuscripted. Now I don't, early in my, early in my ministry, I would preach from a manuscript and uh, somewhere around the year 2000, 2001, it was a new year's day service. And I was like, Let's see if I can do without this, um, and and I did, and um, but I, so I developed a process to move from manuscript to preaching without a manuscript, and and for me uh, that was incredibly freeing. Not because it let me just go off the handle on things, but I wasn't tied to to reading something, and so I was able to, as you said earlier, I could I could watch people, mm-hmm. I could kind of gauge. Uh, are people responding? Do I need to repeat something? Uh, you know, I could think more about my timing. Um, do I need to pause more here uh, to let people let that absorb? Do, you know, so it it really freed me from that. And every time I see a young preacher uh, preaching um, and they're on a manuscript, I'm like, man, I'm so glad you're using that. But, I, you know, here's how one day uh, I hope you'll be able to move beyond the manuscript. I always do the manuscript. Um, because I think, you know, you get to see it uh, and you get to feel it. Um, the my the end of my process is this weird thing. If you ever uh, see me on a Sunday, I've got a, a sheet of eight and a half by 11 paper folded in half. And on each side, it's handwritten. The entire sermon is handwritten on that in tiny little letters. I could never read it. It's just dumb. I, it's, people are like, why do you why do you take that up with you? I'm like, I, don't, I, don't, I don't know. I don't look at I can't look at it. Um, it's like a safety security blanket. That's exactly what it is. And, um, but what that does for me on Saturday, when I do that is it puts it in my mind. And as I'm handwriting it, I'm speaking it in my mind. And so I'm like, oh no, I've got to, my, it's almost my final edit of things. This is a better way to phrase that right here. And so it's all, you know, uh, there's a lot of, a lot of it that I don't understand, but it's just, Finding your process for things. Same thing. I mean, you your work with your podcast and, and writing and articles and stuff. It's just about figuring out the process that that works uh, works best for you. And let me let me just say back up to the your book um, for our podcast. 
uh, that Chris McLilly and I, and I'm going to do a commercial for that. It's the weight podcast.com. Great podcast. But we interviewed uh, Mike Bianco a few weeks ago. And you want to talk about a guy that works a system and works a process. Um, that guy uh, is, uh, in some, he's a machine uh, the way he, he works. Detail oriented to every part. I mean, there, there is, it is, I mean, it's very, it's, it's very similar to Nick Saban. I mean, there's a reason you have successful coaches who do that is it's result is fine, but it's, did we do the process correctly in every way that led us to giving us the best chance mm-hmm. for whatever that looks like? I mean, that, that, that's the, that's the thing there. That's, that's fascinating. When when you said he brought out the binder, I laughed. I was like, yeah, I bet you he's got a, a billion binders in a you know basement somewhere in a box that I'm sure his wife Cammy is going to burn at some point for him. <laughs> no. He he's the equivalent of you know David Kellum still has every score sheet from every game he's ever called. Um, wow! So I can call, I can call. Like I wrote a story years ago when Ole Miss beat LSU two out of three in Baton Rouge in 2019. That was the first time they had won two out of three in Baton Rouge since 1982. Um, and I called DK and I said, hey, I'm writing a story about the number, that 1982 team, at least that weekend. What do you got? And within five minutes, it's here's the score sheet. Here's the box scores. Here's the whole deal where he had kept it and called it and, and whatnot. And that was it's one of the favorite parts of my book is in the pictures at the end, I have his score sheet from the national championship game on yeah. both sides is, is, is what he had. But, yeah, David has has everything laid out there since he – his first baseball game to call for Ole Miss was the SEC tournament in 1977, and he has everything wow. since that. Everything That's since a, that since that point. Yeah, he's seen Ole Miss baseball from when it was uh, played on a dirt field beside the football stadium. When I got to Ole Miss, I uh, in the fall of '89, um, the the big stadium uh, Swayze Field mm-hmm. was opening the next spring, but they hadn't demolished uh, the old stadium. And I just remember thinking, our stadium at the park in Akron, Mississippi, was comparable to what Ole Miss played on through all those years, those early years he was calling games. It was crazy. Yeah. Something that struck me while you were were saying that, do you, and I I guess I assume not, but I'll ask the question anyway, does your sermon change at all just because of the environment of doing a traditional service versus a modern service? Not really. Does it not? Um, No. Uh, So sometimes, uh, you know, you have a modern service or some people call it a contemporary service. And like at OU, it, you had screens, uh, traditional service uh, did not uh, at OU. Uh, and so there would be sometimes images that people would get uh, at the modern service that you wouldn't get at the traditional service. Um, it just meant I had to work hard to describe the scene if I didn't have that. So, um, but it really didn't change. You mentioned the pandemic. Uh, and there, I could get into the minutia of when it first happens and what do you do, but now that it is over, what have you taken with you, good and bad? I mean, what, wait, what, where? Because I, I find myself even doing this now, where I mean, we're doing this podcast on Zoom, and I don't know that we'll be doing that Mm-mm. prior to the pandemic. We probably would be just doing some sort of phone thing, but we're not looking at each other. We have less interaction. It, it, it's a worse product pro- process from that standpoint. When it's all done, are there things that have remained, or at least that you have learned that have that have assisted in that way? Yeah, I, I think technology, Zoom, streaming, one of those things that um, most churches had kind of dabbled in, particularly larger churches had dabbled in before the pandemic, um, but became critical 
during and even after now. I mean, um, it, on a weekly basis here in Jackson, we'll have 150, 200 people watching our stream uh, from all over the place, from all over the United States, mm -hmm. uh, Costa Rica, uh, different places. And so, you know, it's, it's changed the reach of churches. It's also changed the expectation, I think, in a bad way of people coming to church. Um, so many people are like, I watched you on the stream, uh, had my coffee. And I'm like, that's great. But there's something that, that we need um, when we're together. And I was in Oxford uh, last weekend um, and saw some folks from uh, from OU and they, they were like, you know, we just haven't been back uh, since the pandemic, but we watch every week. And I said, well, go back. Um, there's just something about being in the presence of other people uh, that, that you miss. And so, um, I, you know, I feel like that we need kind of the balance. And I think that's where the struggle is in the life of the church with technology. How do we use it uh, versus how do we uh, leverage it correctly, but we need to be in person. This past year, they had been doing a lot of meetings in Jackson on Zoom. And I was like, you know, it's time. It's time for us to be face-to-face. -face. And, and maybe in some way we learned that as well, that technology uh, is great for some things. We couldn't be doing this. I mean, when we launched our podcast in February of 2020, our idea is that we would just bring people in and sit down with them to do the podcast. Mm -hmm. uh, but but technology let us really do something vastly different and it and allows you to do that uh, as well. So there's a place for technology. I think the conversation uh, for most organizations is still what's the right place for technology. What you're talking about, I, I, I felt after the pandemic, I mean, church attendance had gotten pretty sporadic when it was not mm -hmm. for a long time, was pretty faithful most Sundays. Yeah. Uh, and we had a, had a pretty set schedule and it wasn't mentally what was interesting about it for me was that it wasn't even a I don't know if I want to do this or a. There was something about, I think, going back into a space, into it, just being around people, which in my heart or in my head, I'm going, that makes all the sense. You like people. You do this every day. Go be around people. That's actually what you need. But there was some sort of crutch to that that I couldn't make myself on Sunday morning follow through, even yeah. though when I would do it, I'd feel great afterward. I, I would have a rush of, hey, that was awesome, whatever. And then I'd get back to Saturday night, Sunday morning the next week, and it would be some sort of malaise again. And it, yeah. it really was strange that I don't, I still to this day don't know how to pinpoint it exactly, but it was yeah. routine. I just didn't, something felt weird. Well, let me, let me tell you. Uh, so yeah, the, the honesty moment here. Um, so for all those months, there was a group on Sunday mornings uh, of about 10 of us at the church, nobody in the congregation, just production people, preachers, musicians. And that was it for all those months. And I remember that very first week when we welcomed people back that next fall. It was it was weird. I mean, yeah. I don't want to say we didn't want people back, but it it just broke something. Yeah, it, it, it caused, you know, for all those months, we had been so limited in our interactions with people. I think in some ways you use the word crutch. I think we allowed ourselves just to present what we wanted to present. We didn't have to be real to people. And maybe that was part of it uh, as, as well, that we didn't have to really, you know, but one of the things that I found out from a ministerial point of view was how valuable the 20 seconds with a person was on a Sunday morning or 
at the baseball field or at uh, in the Grove, what I realized was I missed people's stories. Uh, when I would run into you for 30 seconds on a Sunday morning, Chase, you know, for what whatever we talked about was something that I knew about you. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, whether it was, hey, man, I'm sorry about your granddad dying. I'm sorry. Yeah, you sure. know, we yeah, can yeah. have these moments that the pandemic stole from us. And, I, and it wasn't just preachers that it stole. It stole from all of us that we lost that ability to just have those intermittent conversations with people that connected us to people. And I will I will go to my grave saying that we got mean. We got meaner as a culture because of that, because we lost that. We we didn't have to look people in the eye and say, if I say something bad about mm-hmm. uh, Chase or what Chase believes, uh, I, I'm free to do that because I'm not going to bump into Chase. Um, and we, I, th- I think there's something... Um, anyway, I, there's going to be lots of research on that. I know it, it was a, it's a, it's a human interaction version of social media where, yeah, you're yeah. Hey, I can just fire off the tweet and say whatever. And there, there's no repercussion because we're not running into each other. I don't, I'll never see rebel 12 again, or I don't know him yeah. or whatnot. And, and, and the way that, that, that plays out, there's no doubt about that. And it's, it's yeah. taken a little while to get, to get normal. I mean, I'll ask you, what, what are you seeing attendance just in general? I mean, what, I mean, I, I guess from you know your experiences, Methodist, however you want to say this, what is church or religion in 2023? Yeah. So there's a guy that um, I, I follow. You can follow him on Twitter named Ryan Burge. Um, he, re- he wrote a book a few years ago called The Nuns, N-O-N-E-S, uh, looking at the uh, Pew Foundation for Religions report that the number of people who claim no religious affiliation has grown from about 7% in the mid nineties to slightly over 30% now, a third of the folks in the United States are claiming no religious affiliation. Ryan's a social scientist. So he looks at stats and figures and studies and he does graphs on Twitter, which I love. Um, but we talked to him for our podcast and the, the numbers are not good. They weren't good before COVID for the church. Uh, COVID became our, our, Oh, look, nobody's coming to church anymore because of, uh, the impact of COVID. Well, nobody was really coming. Let me back up. Not as many people were coming. There had been this long, slow decline, and not just in the Methodist Church, in the Baptist Church, uh, evangelical churches, progressive churches. It didn't matter. Every denomination in the United States for the last fifteen to twenty years has seen significant uh, decline. Uh, twenty twenty one, less than fifty percent of Americans claim church membership for the first time since they started studying that. Um, one of the things that Ryan Burge does is he knows where to get real information, longitudinal studies. So he's not just looking at uh, some Joe Blow who did a Twitter uh, Twitter survey. He's looking at studies that ask the same questions over the course of time. And I think one of the things that I'm learning um, is that we have to figure out the box that we're in uh, as a church, uh, the box that's uh, given to us by uh, stats uh, real figures, uh, the communities that we're in, how they're changing, how they're not changing. Um, and we have to figure out how to live within that. For a long time, we didn't have to do that. I wasn't trained to do that. Uh, I don't know many pastors right now that are being trained to do that. That's not the model of education. It's management 101. Um, but it's not, how do we, how do we really look at our communities 
How do we really look at what's going on with our churches and not just say, if we can just build a better box or build a better boat like we had in 1987, we'll be okay. If the preacher can just preach a better sermons, we'll be, that's just not true uh, anymore. I think at one time it was. Um, but if you peel back and a guy named Ed Stetzer, who's a Southern Baptist talks about this. He's a, uh, used to work for the convention. Now he teaches uh, out in California, but when the Southern Baptist uh baptism numbers started to tank about four or five years ago, uh, he made, he quipped, he said, well, uh, I guess we've baptized all the Episcopalians, Methodists, and Lutherans we could find. <laughs> and, and so, uh, you know, he admitted the truth that churches just trade people around and that's been our growth model. But now that people aren't there to trade around, um, I think we've got a different world. We've got to figure out a post-Christian world. What, yeah, I mean, I, I guess you answered this, but what is the weirdness of that where a church now is, it's a marketing body as as, as, as much as it is in a lot of things. It, it's trying to get eyeballs in all these ways that, I mean, it, 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 church is community. So I understand it in a lot of ways too, but I would assume also you're having to have meetings where you go, hey, let's do all these things. Let's do all these ideas. Let's be engaging, but let's not necessarily completely lose the reverence of it either. I mean, what, yeah. how, how does this sort of work to meld all that together? Yeah. Well, one of the things that uh, has happened post-COVID with folks who are attending church uh, is that they are attending church less. Uh, and that's uh, not just on Sunday mornings. It's the the ability to get they give less hours a week. So, you know, at one time you could count on uh, people would come on Wednesday nights and they would come uh, for two hours on Sunday morning for Sunday school uh, and church. Or they might give an hour during the week for a small group. Those days are gone. Uh, what we find now uh, is that families uh, who are our regular families, and this is borne out in, again in studies, uh, are attending um, about once every six weeks, once every eight weeks. And these are regulars, the people we count as regulars. Um, and they're giving less hours per week. And so whereas they at one time they might have come for two hours on Sunday morning, they'll give you one hour for worship. And so what I think that calls you to do is to think about, okay, one, what are we asking people to give time-wise? And when they do show up, what are we offering? And so for me, what it's, let's, let's cut away the fluff. You know, you know, all the, you know, whatever, you know, the funsy, whatever, let's just, whatever. But let's invite people, uh, if when they know they show up, they're going to get, they're going to hear how does faith impact their life. Um, when they come to a small group, we want to make sure they're, uh, they're led by someone who can lead them in a conversation that matters. Um, when we do a large event, uh, and this has been a change, uh, we're not going to depend on just church people showing up. How do we make sure we are inviting the community and trusted enough by the community that people will come? Uh, we've got an event um, on uh, Palm Sunday, April 2nd, which is a community event. It's a large Easter egg hunt. It's a but it's what we're doing is we're in in the local schools, we're in our neighborhoods around the church, inviting people. This slow process of helping people trust the church again, because people don't trust institutions. It's not just church; they don't trust institutions. They don't trust the church anymore, and for a lot of valid reasons, they don't trust the church anymore. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. 
Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. You mentioned it kind of in passing that during COVID, you wondered if this was still your path, if this is what was going to be. Were there, were there obvious reasons why you felt that? I mean, what, what, what brought that into your mind that that was even a, a conversation to have with yourself? Yeah. A couple things. One, when I was a young pastor, I, I knew pastors who got to their late fifties um, and, and they had, they were, they were still serving, but they'd outserved their calling. Uh, you could tell they were, uh, they they packed it in. They were done. Um, I didn't want to be that. Uh, it was part of that. I was, you know, I turned 50 um, that January of the pandemic. And so it was, uh, okay, I've got 15 more years of work to give. Mm-hmm. Um, where's my best gift of that? How do I best use that? So that was part of it. So it was probably midlife, my version of midlife crisis. The other thing, just to be quite honest, is that uh, Christians were mean during COVID. I, I'm not going to lie. It's uh, and maybe pastors deserved the anger and the frustration and the venting of uh, of church members. But there was one week uh, we had made a decision. We pushed out a decision about something during COVID. Um, one day I got an email calling me a trumper. A couple of days later, I, I got a deci- I got an email somebody calling me a communist. Same decision. I couldn't be a Trumper and a communist together. <laughs> and I, you know, I'm, I'm looking at these two emails going, what the crap? I'm, we're, we're doing the best faithful work we can do. And you're going to come at me like this. And, um, and, and so, there, you know, there's just a lot of that. There's, and you look at the number of pastors who left the ministry during COVID, it, you know, again, Ed Stetzer and other folks can share some of those numbers with you, but it was dramatic um, because in, in part of it is here, here's what I know. Everybody was scared. Everybody was anxious. And when we get scared and anxious. The way that comes out is anger. Um, and typically we take our anger out on the people um, we can most easily take our anger out on without any repercussions. And so the sure. church was a place Pastors were the people. Um, and I get that. At some level, even then, I understood that. And I was able to blow a lot of it off. Um, but it just wore on you. 
Uh, and so, uh, and, and a lot of my friends, uh, you know, I, I uh, somewhere in there, I, I started going to counseling. I was like, I got to figure this one out. Um, and so, so those were the two things. I think it was just a moment of, is this what I'm called to do? And two, I seeing the mean underbelly of, of the church for a bit, uh, not just at not just at OU, but seeing my other friends, you know, limp through it as well. I was like, maybe I don't, maybe I'm not called to this. One thing that I will do is I'll get some emails that really annoy me and I'll reply and then delete it. I won't uh-huh. actually send it, but I will write it out and I will say everything that I'm really, really thinking and then kind of cleanse it. I'll hit the whatever and I'll write back, hey, thanks for your feedback. I really appreciate yeah, blah, blah, right. blah, 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 blah. Yeah. Sounds great. Awesome. Yeah. You know, yeah. yeah. I think one, I think either the person who called me a communist or a Trumper got that email and the other one, the whichever one came in second, they never heard from me. I was like, you know what? Uh, there, there was one person sent me a long email and I, I, I responded with a, what I felt like was a very kind, long email. And then I got just vitriol back. And I was like, you know what? Thank you for responding. Was my response to that? So uh, you know, it it uh, yeah, it it is what it, I'm glad we're past. I'm glad we're now where we can look each other in the eye, uh, and I think that changes the tenor yeah. of those. I don't think those two people who sent me those two emails back in January of 2021 would send them today, um, because yeah. Let's talk a little about your podcast. The the, yeah. the 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 way it got started a good bit ago, you and Chris. And um, I guess I was talking to him at some point last year, and he was talking about that when you guys were able to do it and get it going, whatever the numbers were, were more people who were hearing a message that mattered, whatever that was. It was almost an extension of the congregation, an extension right. of whatever, where you're just reaching more people. Was that the goal when it started? Because you're talking about something with multiple seasons. I mean, it really has 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 had a, a duration and a shelf life that, frankly, a lot of podcasts don't have. I mean, I've got several podcasts that I've killed much quicker than that and different things where there are, you know, there's a faithful following and it's messages that maybe need to be heard. Where where did that start? And then where do you feel like it evolved into ways that allowed it to, to go at, as it has? One of the things we talked about before we launched it was, you know, there's just conversations that we need to have that you can't put in a 15 minute, 20 minute sermon. Um, and, and there are voices that need to be heard. And th- there's a way that we think that Christians can offer generous hospitality uh, to people who differ from us uh, in what we believe. And so we wanted to have those kinds of conversations. And uh, we started it um, uh, talking about some of the Methodist mess back in uh, again, February of 2020. And then we realized nobody cared about that because it was everything had shut down. And so we shifted almost immediately to uh, bringing in some, an educator to help our parents think about how do we do this? We brought in mental health folks. We brought in leaders who could help frame the moment for not just us, but other folks who would listen. And so we didn't know how long it would go. We're in our fourth season now. And um, February of this year, uh, we had over 6,000 downloads or listens, which was our best month ever. And in the, uh, in the world of podcasting, um, that puts you in the, you know, the top 40% of, of podcasts because there's so many podcasts that people put out there listen by their mom and their brother. And we didn't know if maybe just I, I, my wife wouldn't listen to it if I begged her to. So I couldn't count on her. Uh, my mom can't, she doesn't know what a podcast is. So uh, we, we had to grow up past our families pretty quick. And so 
it's been a lot of fun for us. Um, we, and we've done some, you know, we, Mac McAnally was on the podcast last fall. Uh, and, you know, he, he's just a fabulous human being uh, who has had amazing success, who's a Mississippian. You know, we had Wright Thompson on in the middle of the podcast uh, talking about sports and the impact of, of uh, the pandemic on sports. And, you know, and, you know, he he shared uh, offline. He's like, look, if, if uh, ESPN doesn't figure out football in the fall, fall, get ready for ESPN yeah. to be very, very different uh, if uh, if it doesn't happen. And, you know, so we've gotten to meet these amazing theologians and people uh, this past week. We uh, released one, a lady named Dana Trent, who. Um, we'd had her on before to talk about something else, but then she released a podcast called Breaking Good and just her um, her trauma as, as a child and how the resilience that she found and what allowed her to step out of, I mean, her dad was taking her on drug deals when she was a five, six-year-old. And how did she end up growing out of that existence into something different? And so we've gotten to meet just some amazing people over the years and you know it's it's kind of hit this niche with people some folks listen to it because um they want some of the theology and some of those conversations some people listen to it because we've been able to dig up some interesting people along the way but for me uh, it has been a gift to kind of expand uh my conversations with people and you learn you learn things i mean as as a podcast host you're you're always growing and having people on where you go hey I find this person interesting. They're going to teach me something. So if they're going to teach me something, they're probably going to teach you something too. I mean, I, I wrote, I'm, I'm recording this on Friday. It'll run next week for anybody who's, who's listening, but I'd written something on the message board this morning in a content item this morning. And I do this thing on Fridays where I have just kind of five thoughts. It's usually four baseball things. And at the bottom I get to play and I get to have one sort of blog entry and, this week it was on it was a podcast I listened to called Modern Wisdom and I listen to it all the time and it's a guy who has just a guest a week really interesting in a number of different different categories and I needed something to run to when I got back from Disney last week and to get away from myself and just be by myself after that uh-huh. crowd mess for the week and I said I don't know that I care about this guest but I like him enough I'll just hit the button and it was a woman who is an expert in decision making regarding relationships and finances. Wow. And I went extra on my run to finish it. And then this morning, I actually put it in the story. And I said, every, frankly, everybody, every married couple too, but everyone considering marriage, every person who is thinking about entering into a long-term relationship where they are connected to another human should listen to that. I mean, it yeah. completely captivated me where I went, I really wish I had known that in 2006, 2007, 2008, whatever, whatever year you want to pick was. And I went, you know, that's the point is that you, you trust the host to have enough niche, enough interest with you to where if they like it, you will like it too. Frankly, it's right. why advertising and podcast works because it's we're similar enough that oh, if you use it, I probably can use it too. Sounds great. Yeah, yeah. But that's how that that's yeah. how that combines. Yeah, and, and let me tell you, if uh, I, I listen to podcasts uh, when I'm working, when I'm doing different things, um, and I find the most amazing people that I was listening to a podcast not long ago with the. Um, the CEO of Vimeo and just how she started talking about how they're trying to figure out post COVID in office work from home. How do you, how do you mentor young workers? If you're hiring people to work in their house, you know, in a different country, how do you 
create, you know, build them into the culture of, of, uh, of the company. I mean, there, there are people out there who are having amazing conversations. And I think I, that's one of the things I'm thankful for with the podcast. It's introduced me to people. And now I go listen to their podcast or, um, you know, we had Kate Bowler um, on the podcast a year and a half ago, two years ago, she stage four colon cancer. Um, it's in remission, but she's a theologian. And but she has a podcast of her own. And if you uh, if you're looking for a good podcast, go, go listen to Kate Bowler's podcast. I can't remember the name of it. Um, Everything happens. That's the name of it. She has the most amazing guests on there, um, and she's a delight as well. So yeah, I think it's been a good thing for me personally. Did you uh, do you write out a bunch of notes and questions for your guests, or is it a little more organic? We when I started, I did. Uh, I would do a deep. I'd read books. I would you know, listen to three podcasts that they had been on before. Um, and now sometimes if I don't know the person, I'll do kind of a, a, a shallow dive okay. into some stuff. Uh, I, but a lot of times we're, we're inviting people, we've read their books or list, found them on a, another podcast. And, um, you know, yeah, so I don't do, I don't do nearly as much um, as I did. But so don't tell my guests that. I found a little more happy medium. I used to almost kind of brag and call it just this organic thing where nah, I'm just shooting and whatever. But I often like no, a little bit of outline is not the worst thing, Chase. Let's let's write some words yeah. down. Let's let's not be completely arrogant about our ability to to, 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 to carry pull the this off. When you're a little yeah. different because it's just you. I know when you and Neil do it, but it, yeah. it's, but but it's just you. It's me or Chris. And so if I don't have a question, I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm, and, and on Zoom, I'm pointing at him. So well, it's, it's what I tell Richard Cross all the time. I'm like, on the radio, you get commercial breaks, bud. Like, there's six minutes where, hey, I'm I'm off. Like, I'm once I hit the play button, we're going. Like, I better have something, or I don't have something, or it gets pretty awkward. It'll it actually happens with Neil some as I'll think he's going to continue on, and then he doesn't, and I go, oh, okay, hold on, let me like get yeah. situated and shuffled around. Yeah, we had a minute like that recently. I was I was looking at Chris. I was like, well, he's going to ask a follow-up because he always asks a follow-up. He just sat there. Nothing. I was like, well, I guess I should jump in. Yeah. Uh, you're sitting in an airport. Do you tell people you're a minister if they ask what you do? No, no. Okay. What are you? A couple, thing, a couple things about me. One <laughs> is I, I, I'm an introvert. And so uh, I may say, hey, to you at an airport. I say, hey, I hope you, you know, we, we may have a moment. But um I, I I don't because you get one or two one or two responses, uh, awkward silence, or they tell you about everything that's gone wrong in their life uh, for the last thirty years, and they want you to solve Uncle Frank's problems. Uh, and you know, I just I again, I'm an introvert, and so I'd rather just keep it light. And you know, yeah, I just I, you know, I do some consulting or I do tax attorney. Know, Nobody wants to talk about the no, IRS. No, tax right. attorney. I work for the IRS. Yeah, uh, <laughs> that's right. Uh, so, yeah, I, I, nobody. Yeah, and that maybe I'm wrong in that. I don't know, but I just don't find that I have the energy sometimes to to make three hours of small talk with somebody on an airplane. I was uh, I was talking to a buddy of mine. This is probably last fall, maybe even last summer. And he was telling me a story and he said, yeah, he goes, I got football games. I get kind of high strong. I'm always kind of worked up or what a bit. And he said, I, um, he said, I've let some profanities loose and I'm probably a little, you know, whatever when Ole Miss starts losing and whatnot. And he said, you know, I always spoke to this guy and said hello and whatnot. And it was fine or whatever. And he said, we always sat in the same seats. And he said, uh, maybe even the second year, um, he goes, finally introduced myself, realized that it was 
Eddie Rester, and he was a pastor. And he said, I was, he goes, I was terrified that I'd gone and thrown all this out here and it was whatever. And he was laughing and obviously it was fine, but he, he got to the punchline and I kind of died. I fell out. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I get it. Yeah. So see, even if you sit beside me in the stadium for a couple of years, it's going to take me a minute uh, to get to know you. Yeah. Hey, how are you? Good. To, good. Now, if Audra's with me, Audra's going to, Audra's beautiful at this. She, she, my, she talks to people, uh, all that, but you know, I, you know, Maybe it's because I'm doing people all day, every day that when I go places, I'm like, I'm just, I just want to put my head down, do not much. I don't mind it depending on the subject, but I'm kind of the same way. I'm an, I'm an introvert who can be extroverted. And there's a very clear thing to that of, Hey, I can go and do whatever and it's fine. And there's no issue. But when that's over, I'm going to need to recharge. I'm going to need a minute by myself to kind of calm down and go, okay, let's fill back up. It doesn't, you know, the biggest difference in introvert and extrovert is, does that fill you up? Do you have to be around people to gain energy? And I can expend my energy, but it's not going to fill my tank back up for later at all. Right. So. Yeah. And when I was an adult before, somewhere in my adult life, before I learned that definition of an introvert, I just thought it was introverts were quiet. Um, but no, it's it's what is the energy level do? If you're around people and it fills you up, oh, you're an extrovert. But if you're mm-hmm. around people and you can do it for hours uh, or a whole weekend, um, you know, Audra knows, Audra knows when I need to go sit in a room by myself and be quiet. How do you wind down? Is it exercise, read? What is sort of your extracurriculars to, to, to do that? We, uh, particularly, uh, our neighborhood here, uh, lends itself to walking. And so we, we do long, you know, three, three mile, two and a half, three mile walks. And that may not be long for some people, but for me it is. Um, or, you know, I love watching, uh, TV. I'm a huge Ted Lasso fan, huge Star Wars mm-hmm. fan. So any Star Wars show, uh, Disney Plus is pumping out. They can take my money. Um, and Ted Lasso, I think, is one of the most brilliantly written TV shows of our generation. Um, and you know, we could have a whole nother conversation on why. Why I think that uh, you can just if if cussing offends you, don't listen. Don't you probably don't want to watch it uh, or overlook that but it's very real it's very part of the show but it's so funny uh, but so insightful it came out of the perfect time too when everybody needed it in 2020 it was the perfect palate cleanser to let us believe in something just laugh just sort of suspend reality in that way from exactly when that came out i i mentioned this on my main show so a lot of people will, will have already heard me say this but I've got some newsletters i read every morning that give me topics for the day and for the the show and the podcast and Ted Lasso has not been hit at all in England that they don't watch Hmm. it. They don't like it whatsoever. And it was talking about the different reasons for that. But I just found it interesting that even during that time when it was so remarkable for us and we needed it so much, the Europeans, because of some of the subject matter in the show, just had no interest for it. Wouldn't give it a chance to, to, to get it going. They, they take, as we take our sports very seriously, they take their football very seriously and they do not like the bumbling American winning and being the 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 protagonist in their yeah, uh in their sport over I there can, i can definitely i can definitely see that yeah the first season was the season we needed the second season um which dealt with grief and mm-hmm. um coming out of covid um i think we the second season it was a little darker and it had two episodes that were just weird uh but they admitted later that they added those two episodes later because they wrote eight episodes. Yes. Uh, Apple said we want ten because you're a moneymaker, so they just threw in the 
the one with Coach Beard on acid or whatever he was on. It was maybe the worst hour of television I've ever watched in my entire life. Yeah, it was so weird. And then the Christmas special, which some people love. It was I good. It, I liked it. it. Was good. I thought yeah, it was good. I liked it, yeah. Okay. But it wasn't the rest. You could tell that it was this blip out of the season. Um, but yeah, it, but we needed to see how grief impacts people and people deal with it in, in healthy ways and unhealthy ways. And, and they made it funny. So, so there. They couldn't have reversed the seasons. You no, couldn't have you had could season two with that type of arc and then try to come out of it. It wouldn't have worked when it. No, because we needed to, there. we needed to know and trust Ted and coach Beard and Jamie and Keely and Rebecca. We needed to say, Oh, I, I like those characters. Oh, those characters are suffering. Um, I, I do that. So, yeah. Did you believe two, – two things left. Did you believe in the Duke team or not? Or how, how did we feel? Uh, yeah, so for those who don't know me, I, I went to grad school at Duke. Grant Hill was a senior. Uh, my first year there, I, I watched in Cameron Indoor as uh, Scotty Thurman sank a three-pointer over mm-hmm. Uh, to win the win the game and walked out in utter silence from Cameron Indoor. Um, so deep love for Duke. I went there after watching um, Ole Miss basketball, which really wasn't basketball during that era. Um, if you're listening, you played basketball during that era. I, I'm sorry that you played yes. for Ole Miss during that era. But uh, so the Duke team this year. Um, here's the thing with one and dones. Either they they're remarkable and they mesh well and everything works. Um, but you have to have older players. Duke only had Jeremy Roach. Um, they had three guys who were injured early in the season. So they didn't really start gelling until um, I think the end, you know, end of the season, but going into the ACC tournament. And then, so I, I believed, but I, I read an article uh, the morning that Duke played Tennessee that talked about Tennessee's strength coach, that Tennessee's secret weapon was this man who made made young guys into monsters? And I was like, oh, this could be a problem uh, because I'll do guys, the Duke guys, seven one, but they're freshmen, and you know, you're just not seasoned at that level of high level basketball as a freshman. Doesn't matter if you come in at seven one two eighty, you're still not strong enough. And that's what happened in that game. They went in and just from the very beginning. I mean, they they punched uh, punched Filipowski in the eye. He bled. Um, you know, they were just those early five, six, seven minutes. They were, they were fouling because they wanted Duke to know we're tougher than you. And they were, they, they absolutely were. were. So I actually think they should just let the one in, like let the kids go straight out of high school, because I think you can get, you know, there's something about individual accountability. You know, one of the reasons is, Hey, well, they're going to make bad decisions. Well, that's life. Like, you know, mm-hmm. at some point you make decisions you're going to make, but two, it allows college basketball to be filled with people who want to play college basketball. Yes. I, yeah, yeah, I, I 100% agree. Or I wish they had the, the baseball rule where is it jun- you have to stay through your junior year. You have to be, yeah. It, it, either turning 21 or your junior year. Yeah. You know, back when Krzyzewski first started, he wouldn't hang banners until everybody on that team graduated. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. Now, he abandoned that <laughs> along the way. Uh, because kids started leaving early and then it became the one and dones. And, um, but I, I just, I, I like the idea of watching Grant Hill for four years, mm-hmm. get seeing him progress from his freshman year to his senior year. Yeah. You know, I like seeing, uh, you know, nobody likes JJ Reddick, but I like JJ Reddick watching him develop into a leader of, 
of the of the basketball team. John Shire, I you know who would he be in this era of basketball? I mean, he wouldn't get recruited by Duke. JJ Reddick is a phenomenal media member now. By the way, his his stuff is, is. Is, is is extraordinary. Um. I tell you too, and this is a longer conversation. We can do a part two at some point if you want. I'm going to keep you longer here, but that's actually what I am on the forefront. I'm not saying sports are dead, but I think they've got to be really careful. They're not dying at the roots. And I think what you're talking about is the reason is that fans are getting hit with more money, more basically taxes because of NIL and all these different things that are going on. And on the bottom side, you're getting fewer human interest stories and kids would either be transferring or going pro there's no fabric from an emotional standpoint to bind them anymore. You're not watching the freshman develop into the sophomore, into the junior, into the senior, and become the leader of the kid, right? I mean, we're in such an instant gratification society that a kid gets into his second year and they go, oh, he's a bust. He didn't play a ton as a freshman. And in the past, you would have redshirt juniors who would, you know, emerge and be these all SEC kind of guys or whatnot. And I, you know, it's, money it's a lot of things it's player rights depending on how you want to feel about that it's so many different topics but i just look at it and there's several things trending right now that there's time to fix it it's not here yet but i think at some point outside of your hardcore 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 your your casual fan is going to go i just don't know that i find myself caring to spend my discretionary time and money in those ways yeah well i mean again diehard duke fan and it took me till mid-season to figure out who the people were on the team, what their numbers were, mm-hmm. you know. It, and in the past, I knew that, well, this guy's number zero and he's going to play for four years. And mm-hmm. I, yeah, I, and so it, I think you're exactly right that there's some rot um, and how it's just real hard for people to get tied. to. I mean, the quarterback situation at Ole Miss, I mean, um, mm-hmm. are we really – can we be Jackson Dart fans if he doesn't start this year? You know, will he leave? And then we've got these other two guys who'll play maybe a year or two. And you know, there's not as much guy coming off the bench to to suddenly become a star because that guy left. Yeah. Um, and for for programs like who aren't Alabama, let's just talk football. Basketball is a different beast, just in terms of the number of players you have. But Alabama, Clemson, Georgia. Uh, who players are, might be willing to sit for two years on the bench, knowing that they're going to get their shot when the All American graduates? But for other programs, Ole Miss, Mississippi State, Missouri, um, maybe Arkansas, mm-hmm. you're, you're not going to have those guys stick around. They're going to they're going to take their shot at you know somewhere else because they can get get seen on TV. So it's going to be interesting. I think when when uh, Oklahoma and Texas join and all that money hits the SEC. Um, what does it really become at that point? But when you've got, yeah. when you've got more money than you really need to run an athletic department, I know, I know they'll Keith Carter will figure out a way to spend every penny of it. That's yeah, of I, course. I gotcha. Sure. Uh, that's what we all do when we get more money, but, but is it really the, the money that we need in that arena? Mm-hmm. So, What's our uh, what's the sermon on Sunday? Where are we? This sermon, uh, we're during Lent. We're talking about uh, the disciples, different disciples, and so we're actually going to jump into the Book of Acts and talk yeah. about a woman named Lydia, uh, who was a seller of purple cloth. So she was an independent woman who had her own business. You never hear about her husband uh, at all, and uh, and she did some amazing things. So that's uh, that's this Sunday. I appreciate it. As uh, as always, good to catch up with you. And next time Absolutely. we can just talk sports the whole time. 
I think we could. Chase, thank you. Yeah, absolutely.